You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Um, we're we're glad to be back. It's a uh, it seems like a long break. We were it really does. Uh, yeah, it seems like it's been forever since we've been in the studio, even though it's only been like four weeks. Right. That's pretty normal for us. But we've just had so much happen. Yeah, we we've had a lot going on. Um, we're still unpacking. We've uh, the house. We're in the new place. Uh, it's starting to look more like your home now. Yeah, it's starting. <laughs> yeah, it's it's still. I I don't know how long does it take a house to stop feeling like a uh, like someone else's. <laughs> don't don't ask me. I, I've never had a house. <laughs> Yeah, well, and it it a part of that I think is is the fact that it does back up to a lake, so it feels like we're in a vacation spot yeah, all it, the time. Your backyard is gorgeous, so it's it's kind of fun. And but, you got the new fence in, so you just like look out, and mm-hmm, it's just it's mm-hmm. beautiful. And yeah, if I had to live in town, which God save me from living in town, but if I had to, <laughs> this would be like some place that I would be interested in. Yeah, so, so that's yeah, saying something. Yeah, that 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 view is really what sold us. But speaking of the new house, um. The studio room is a little smaller in this place, but I wanted to just take a moment to say thanks to our Patreon supporters because um, we were able to buy some, uh, upgrade our mics, which is nice, yes. and then get these wonderful stands that clip to the desk. So which we, I love. We have all the floor space <laughs> here. So for our YouTube viewers, you can see we can move our hands freely and not have to worry about hitting a mic stand. Maybe my feet won't fall asleep. <laughs> yeah. You're also not just looking down a mic stand at us. We've got ready. We're able to get rid of the pop filters. Yeah. So you can, and see more of our faces. Yeah. And no, but we do. We've got great listeners, great supporters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we don't expect anything from any of our listeners. No, um, no. We, and, but we appreciate it. And it is such an encouragement. This last week, if I give a shout out to Linda, she's in the paddle store. And I know she, she'll hear this episode. She sent me this wonderful solar charger for my phone, chocolate dusted almonds, coffee. Uh, you know, it just nothing that she had to do just being a good friend. And that's kind of how I look at most of our listeners. They become our friends because a lot of mm-hmm, them will mm-hmm. start to interact with us. And I think I talk to most, well, not most, but a lot of our listeners one or, once or twice a week with specific ones, you know, yeah. so there's a lot of conversations that go on and, and, you know, they aren't just people who exist in some kind of weird abyss of, <laughs> of online, uh, whatever they, they are real people to us. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and definitely thank you so much for the support that it makes the, the upgrading possible. And yes. thanks to Sweetwater for getting the mics for us. We, yeah. They, well, they didn't give them to us, but you know, <laughs> they shipped them out. They shipped them to us, got them to us. Yeah. They're doing a great job over there. And these, uh, apparently these are hard to get a hold of right now. So Kind Yay, of a, so kind of nice that we got them. But no, I'm I'm loving it. I'm having to get used to having to look th- through the the stand at you. But you know, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a little different. Uh, yeah, for us, but it's it's so much nicer. It really um, is. I, I we've been recording three minutes and I'm already happy. Yeah. So <laughs> so yeah it, yeah not to spend too much time on that, but I did want to just point out that uh, that. But we but we did, and also it's kind of nice getting the TV in here. That that was not Patreon supporters. That was an old TV we had in storage. <laughs> um, so. Just so you know, we're not just frivolously right. spending money. But, <laughs> but that's uh, going to be so nice for the commentarians because yeah. I did the last episode watching on a little laptop screen. So this is going to be great. Because yeah. you have to read the subtitles when you do commentarians. Right. So right. yeah. this will be good. So, so yeah, uh, but that's, there's that. So let's, uh, let's get into Bible stuff. I know that people aren't here just to right. hear about the, the Patreon supporters, but uh, no. they're fantastic. So yeah, we just you. want people to know that, yeah, they are appreciated. And uh, no, so last week we kind of like ran off the rails and got to talking about some of our own stuff. Uh, but we were in the end of chapter 26. Uh, that was that parallel chapter to 24. And we were seeing that kind of evolution, for lack of a better word, with David that maturing, that growing. I, and, you know, and he's not really in a great spot right now. But as that that chapter draws to a close. Um, you know, David has said that he's really upset that he's being condemned to leave Israel, which basically means he's being condemned to worship other gods. 
And um, he even says, now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. So, I mean, this is, he doesn't want to die outside of Israel because that might have spiritual implications for him. Hmm. And, you know, the idea of not dying in the presence of the Lord, I think we can kind of understand it. We might not understand it geographically, but we understand it from a spiritual perspective today. We want to be in that relationship with the Lord. And in verse 20b, he, he goes back and he repeats the insults that he said to, to Saul previously. He kind of rephrases them from chapter 24, but he says, you know, basically no king should behave this way. Saul right. is not behaving like a king. And he, he places this blame for the exile squarely on Saul's shoulders because Saul could have made it where David was welcome in Israel. And, you know, he's been questioning up to this point. Why did Saul allow this? Was it God who incited him? Was it the people who incited him? Or, you know, is it just Saul's bad attitude? And um, he, this time, instead of the dog illustration, he asked if the king's going to come out to seek a single partridge in the mountains. Hmm. Uh, so, um, but then Saul says, then I have sinned. Return my son, David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I've acted foolishly. And have made a great mistake. And this is the first time we really see any contrition from Saul. Mm-hmm. It's the first time, you know, always before, whenever he's been confronted with something he's done wrong, he, he's made a mistake. And you know, think back to uh, the Amalekites and Agog and, oh, well, the people did it. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, here's Samuel, the prophet, who, who can see straight into his heart, who has his revelation knowledge from God. And Saul still tries to make excuses. So for the first time, we have Saul acknowledging his wrong. And this is the closest we ever get to any kind of admission on his part that he may have wronged David. So in verse 22, David answers and says, here's the spear, O king, but one of the young men come over and take it. So we talked about how that was a symbol of Saul's authority. So David is not even going to take the symbol of Saul's authority. He's going to return it. And he's showing that he could, in a very symbolic way, take Saul's authority at this point. Mm -hmm but he chose not to. And this is very reminiscent of that cutting of the robe where David symbolically disrobed Saul in front of his men. Right. And so, but the thing is with a robe, you can't, you can't return a robe. You can return a spear, but not the corner of a robe that's been cut off. Right. Right. So, um, you know, David, um, he defers to God's rule in this. Saul is God's anointed and he even prepares to, to, leave God's presence because the authority God's anointed has forced him into the situation. And he says, the Lord re- rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness for the Lord has given you into my hand today. And I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. So again, we're hearing that echo of almost the exact same words that David said in chapter um, 24, God's going to judge, God's going to reward, and he's going to let God do it. Mm-hmm. He's not going to work out his salvation with his own hand, which is what we saw with David and Abigail. That was her admonition against uh, David whenever he started to kill everyone in Nabal's camp. Right. So verse 24, he says, behold, oh, I guess I shouldn't um, read the same verse twice. <laughs> and, but we also see that that same uh, sentiment uh, that David has just said echoed in Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever he one sows that he will also reap. So David's words are prophetic, at least in the conversation between David and Saul. Saul's going to die and David's going to live because he allowed Saul to live. Mm -hmm. And David spared Saul tribulation. And so David's going to be delivered out of this tribulation. And David, you know, he bases his prom, this, this prophecy or the, these words in the promises and the um, character of God. Mm-hmm. And going right back to, you know, when you go to Deuteronomy and you look at Deuteronomy, it, it's so full of, um, if you do this, I will do that. Right. And so this is um, one reason why that book is so crucial, I think, for understanding um, God's nature, that God really does want to reward those who obey him. And this is setting us up for what's going to happen in chapter 28 and talking about how God deals with Saul in those last days. We aren't there yet. I know this is a passage everybody's ready for us to get to because that's the Witch of Endor stuff. Right. So. Yeah, for, <laughs> very, very confusing passage. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're going to spend some time on that one uh, because I, I had to pick through a lot of threads, a lot of threads. <laughs> so verse 25, 
Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son, David. You will do many things and you will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. So David's going to leave and join the Philistines for a while. And um, he doesn't seem to believe Saul's words enough to stay in Israel. He, he seems to believe, based on his actions, that he is going to have to completely remove himself from Saul's sphere of influence. Mm. He's got to get out of any place where Saul has any kind of uh, authority. And, and Saul doesn't pursue him. Saul just accepts his fate. So he, he, goes back, he goes back home at that point. So the two part ways, this is the last time they're going to talk. We, we're not going to see them together again. And it, it's a really, it's kind of a sad story because we have to remember with everything that's passed, this all began with David serving in Saul's courts. Mm-hmm. David was a source of comfort and a source of peace for Saul. And everything has been turned on its head. And now, you know, Saul has been chasing David all over the mountains with an army of 3,000 men. And it really is, it's a sad time because this isn't just wicked King Saul. This is the man who kind of became David's surrogate father in a lot of ways. Right. So I think we forget sometimes that David did not hate Saul. And he's not just behaving properly towards Saul because it's the right thing to do. David really does have an affection towards him. Mm -hmm. So... We're moving into chapter 27. Uh, this, is, this is a really, really troubling period of David's life. It, it, it's so troubling that the writer of Chronicles just completely ignores it. It doesn't even want it recorded in the history. Uh, the only reference, really, that we have to the events of chapter 27 in the book of Chronicles is uh, Chronicles 12.1, First Chronicles 12.1, and it tells us that Ziklag, became the property of David because of Saul. But beyond that, we aren't given any kind of details. But we've got to remember, the book of Samuel was written to support um, the Davidic monarchy, Mm -hmm. but it was also to even question the idea of having a monarchy. Right. And that was also one of the things that uh, uh, on... Understanding Sin and Evil. Sorry, I mm-hmm. couldn't think of the name of Miriam Brand's show. Um, that was one of the things that she talked about with First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. It was written during the exilic period mm-hmm. to answer the question of, well, if we're God's chosen people, why are we in exile? Right. And the answer is because here's a chronicle. Well, not chronicle, but you know, <laughs> here's a. Uh, here's, here's a record, your here's your, here's a record of how much stuff you screwed up. Exactly. So that's, you know, if you really need the answer and really want the answer, here's, you know, mm-hmm. four books, four scrolls worth of just <laughs> messed up stuff. That you have done, that your ancestors have done, that you're still having to work out. Then conversely, you have Chronicles, which was written, why should you come back? Yeah. Why return to this place that you got kicked out yeah. of? And then Chronicles, yeah, it goes into, well, look how great the monarchy was. <laughs> exactly. And, and so you, you have these opposing views. And the thing is, despite the fact you've got opposing views, it's not contradictory. It's how you frame something. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, right now we just went through the election. And I'm not going to comment on who should win or why. That's right. beside the point. How you interpret the results of the election and whether it's good or bad depends on your framework, right. even if you acknowledge the same facts. Mm-hmm. So, um, but that, I mean, I, I'm just using it because it's a handy example. Uh, again, we don't get political. Not endorsing <laughs> any candidates here. Well, one, one social taboo of talking about religion is enough. We don't need another one. So, <laughs> but the reason why this is, this is so troubling is David is living with with the Philistines. I mean, these are the sworn enemies of Israel. The whole purpose of having a king is to defeat the Philistines. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And here's David, the guy who's been anointed king, and he's living with them. And supposedly he's fighting with the Philistines. Uh, We're going to talk about what's going on there as we get into the chapter. But also David is repeatedly lying to the Philistines in this chapter. Mm -hmm. And we we never know... um, what David's motivations are if you stay in the moment. Now, if you go forward, you can read back into this chapter, but if we stay within this chapter in the context of it, 
we have to just kind of go with what the writer's presenting us. But he he really works to stay in the good graces of this Philistine, and he does that through his lies. He accepts gifts from the king of the Philistines, most notably the city of Ziklag. Uh, David is said to kill men, women, and children in his raids simply because it's the smart military strategy. We're going to talk about that some. Hmm, fun. Oh, yeah. Uh, we don't have any reference for God in this entire chapter. None. David never appeals to God. He never makes a request of God. He never seeks guidance. And so that's problematic. Yeah. I, I, I do find it really weird that the king would just give him a whole city. Isn't it, though? I mean, I think it really kind of comes down to the friend, the enemy, enemy of my, my enemy, enemy yeah. is my friend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Saul was supposed to be this king's enemy. And Saul had been publicly anointed by, by Samuel. And remember, during Samuel's lifetime, the Philistines, they stayed in check. Mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. didn't have a problem with them. And it wasn't until um, Saul came to the, to the throne that we start having active uh, conflict between the two nations. Yeah. So Saul really is their enemy in their eyes. And do they know that David's anointed to be king? We don't know. Right. And we really, we know that in Israel, hey, it's starting to get out. Yeah. But how much do the Philistines know? Well, I thought they knew because if, when David was uh, pretending to be, ang- you know, to be mad earlier in the book, didn't one of the Philistines say, isn't this supposed to be their leader or something of that effect? Yeah, uh, that's chapter 21. And uh, is not this David king of the land. And that's verse, uh, verse 11. Uh, did he not sing? Uh, did they not sing it to one another of him and dances? Saul struck down his thousands, and David and his ten thousands. So, you know, and when we talked about whether that was just because he'd won that battle against Goliath, um, right, right. you know, was he, he was a great warrior? He had won many battles after that. By the time he gets to to Gath, but um, did they know about the anointing, or did they think it just didn't stick? I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it's just weird. <laughs> It's a it, whole weird saga. It, and it really is. And I, uh, I was actually talking to Joshua Thur- Sherman uh, this week. And he, he said something along the lines of he forgets how weird our faith is sometimes. Yeah. And, well, I mean, that's I mean, part of the reason we have the show called Faith and Other Oddities. <laughs> Emphasis on the oddities, which, you know, it's kind of us. But, uh, <laughs> but that's, the, that's the fun part about this. It's never a bland story. And I think sometimes whenever you, you grew up in church and you got the little watered-down uh, Sunday school lessons, uh, you know, you got the 20-minute sermon that really didn't dive into this, you, you forget that this is a whole different—I mean, it, it could start out with that Star, uh, Star Wars beginning, you know, in a galaxy far, mm-hmm. far away, because that's what it feels like if we really stop to, to examine it. So in verse 1 of uh, chapter 27, David accepts that Saul is not going to give up. And so he, he leaves Israel, and uh, he sees it as a way of removing himself from Saul's lands. And he, he decides, like I said, to go into the land of the Philistines. And it's, it's striking that the author provides absolutely no commentary about this move on David's part. He doesn't condemn it. He doesn't approve of it. He just records it. And so we don't know what the writer of Samuel thought about these events. Uh, we're not told whether God approves of it or God disapproves of it. We're, we're just told that David does it. And um, the, the really interesting part is we are told what David is thinking. And remember, we very rarely get what David's thinking until we go over into the Psalms. And we're told that then David said in his heart, and this could be a clue or it could be, be me overreaching because <laughs> so I want to, I, I want to make that clear, you know, throughout this book, the one person that we do know who, what he's thinking all the time is Saul. And we're, mm-hmm. we're always being told what Saul's thinking. We aren't being a clue as to what, what David is thinking. And, uh, I kind of wonder if the writer's kind of hinting that David's still making that struggle with what kind of king is he going to be. And we've talked about that in the previous stories, how we're, we've been seeing evidences that David might be taking on some of the characteristics of Saul, particularly when he threatened to kill the whole camp of Nabal and 
um, you know, just destroy everybody who stood in his way. We talked about whether he was going to be a judge or not. But now we have this this very Saul-like phrase used in connection to David. And um, so I, I think the writer is trying to show us, and again, that's me thinking this. I'm not seeing this with anybody else. The writer is trying to show us we still have to answer the question, what kind of king is David going to be? Is he going to be like Saul or is he going to be the king that God desires? And, um, you know, it's not just a question that we as a reader have to confront. I think this is very much a question that David himself was having to confront. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, it's very easy to take on the methods and manners of the, your boss. You know, if You've been trained to do a job by somebody who does it a particular way. You tend to do it that same way. And David's been with Saul, and this has this was how Saul was a king. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, you know, I I hope it does. But um, yeah, that's why I'm. This is the fun part. It's like you have to take these little clues and look at them, and you have to be careful not to read too much into them. And that's man, that's the hard part because you don't want to overreach, but you don't want to miss something mm-hmm. in the silence. So verse two, David arose and went over, and he and 600 men who were with him, him to Achish, the son of um, Maok, the king of Gath. So David leaves Israel, he's got 600 guys with him, and he goes to Gath. Now, David's already been to Gath, as we referenced earlier, back in chapter 21, verses 10 through 15, and the king had driven him out because David had pretended to be mad. So... um. You know, the, the question there is, why does David expect this time uh, to, to be different? And there's a few possible answers. At this time, he's arriving with his family and an army. He's not just coming in as a single individual. Uh, he could be looked at as a possible resource, mm-hmm. as we said, that enemy of my enemy thing. And so it could be that... Uh, the king of Gath at this point thought that David was going to join his side. And... Yeah. Well, I mean, it even says so later in the chapter mm-hmm. that the, uh, oh, where is it? Uh, so David, uh, I got to find it. One of those but, verses. And Achish trusted David thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people, Israel. Mm-hmm. Therefore, he shall be always be my servant. So there, yeah, I mean, it definitely is kind of that part of it. Um, mm-hmm. It might also be, that because David did show up with 600 people, it's like, well, it's not going to be as easy to just kill him. Right. Yeah. You can't just drive out 600 people as yeah. easily as one guy. A little bit more of a fight there. And especially knowing that, you know, these are experts in guerrilla mountain warfare mm-hmm. and they've already proven that. And so not uh, easy guys to dismiss. Uh, the, another reason could be this, this might be a different king. Uh, we did not have that son of Mayok uh, okay. at the the first chapter and so, or in the 21st chapter and, you know, Achish could have been a very common name among the Philistines. I mean, you know, how many people do we know named John? Sure. So uh, it could have also been another title for the king. Uh, Like we discussed, Ahimelech might be, or Abimelech, sorry, Ahimelech was the priest. Abimelech um, might be a title. So it's not uncommon even today for, for rulers to have, um, a couple of different titles to refer to the same position, especially if they're exalted positions. Mm -hmm. So, um, we are also being told that, you know, they came with their families. And so the fact that they brought their families with them may make it seem like it was less of an attack and more of a migration or immigration situation. So Mm -hmm. we're going to show kindness to the refugees. And so verse three, uh, I'm not going to read it. Actually, it tells us, it gives us this list of things that, they, that comes with them. Wives, children, the elderly, slaves, and you, any domestic livestock, um, are, they're traveling with them. Is that actually in the verse or does I just um, insinuated that from, <laughs> from reading the verse? Sorry, I slept since I wrote these notes. And so uh, that winds up translating to not remembering everything. So every th- man in his household so again, yeah, children, elderly, the uh, the livestock, all of that would have been with them, and and the children and the livestock in particularly, and even the women would have been seen as wealth, and they would have been seen as something that you would want to add to your land. 
And the, the fun thing is, if you start to look at the numbers, I mean, like just conservatively mm-hmm. looking at the numbers, assume that for every six, every one of the 600 men, there's three other people with them, or he represents a group of three. You've got 1,800. That's, that's a very small family. Like, yeah, a, ridiculously a small. is very small for the time. Yeah, ridiculously small. But I mean, 1,800 people. The town we grew up in is 600 people alone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so this is, this is a big migration of, of people. I don't care who you are. Right. Because 1,800, I mean, that's, it, it would have been probably twice or three times that easily. So we're also told that David brings his two wives, uh, Ahinanam. Uh, yeah, I did notice that, that they're specifically named in the group. Mm-hmm. Yes. They, they are singled out. Uh, Ahinanam of Jezreel is a geographic marker. We got Abigail of Carmel, so we got the geographic marker with her, but also Nabal's widow is how the ESV translated. Mm-hmm. It actually says the wife of Nabal. So she's still being considered, which goes back to uh, the, the Leverate. Exactly. Yeah. Leverate marriage possibilities. Exactly. So this is a, a support of that idea. So verse four, and when it was told to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. So Saul's given up. David's out of his reach. Saul, it, the, the funny thing about this verse, Saul's job as a king was to fight the Philistines. Mm-hmm. Saul's single-minded purpose as a king was to kill David. And yet he is so reluctant to do what God has commanded him to do, he won't even chase his, you know, his sworn enemy into the Philistine land. Well, it, it, uh, when I read that, I look at it and go, well, that just makes sense. Because now if, you, if you're going to go to the, get the Philistines, you got to go through David. Or if you're going to get David, you're going to have to go through the Philistines. So he's, he's fighting like a double-fronted battle, basically. It, uh, oh, that's the problem. Saul always does what makes sense. He always does what's expedient. He always does what benefits him the most at the expense of, of obedience. And okay. so he, he's not willing to face the, the, the Philistines, even when it aligns with his own purposes. But I mean, think back to, to the Amalekites, whenever he spared the best animals, he spared the king. Mm-hmm. Just, just because... That was something that was going to benefit him, and it was not obedience. Or when he offered the sacrifice, when he shouldn't have offered the sacrifice, he should have waited on Samuel. Saul is very much about what he thinks is going to work in the moment for his benefit. Right. And forget everything else. And Well, speaking of, <laughs> speaking of all that, if we, we continue in the chapter here, it says that David kills the women and children— and mm-hmm. takes the donkeys and was it uh, takes the donkeys and the camels and the garments and the mm-hmm. oxen and the sheep. Mm-hmm. I mean, he does basically what Saul did. Yeah, yeah, but he there's does. No, there's no mention of whether or not it's okay or not. Right, right, and I think the the big difference there, um, Saul had direct orders. Well, I know Saul had direct orders. Yeah. But it's also... It's like, why is there a double standard? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Is like, why is it okay for David to take this stuff? I, I get Saul had direct mm-hmm. orders. But oftentimes, don't we kind of extrapolate like from one situation, maybe we should do the same thing here? I don't know. It's, this is a really good question. And this is, this is one of the reasons why this chapter is so problematic. It's why, um, it's why Chronicles doesn't bring it up. Because David is acting very much like Saul at this point in time. Right. Which is really, I mean, and I get, you know, of course, why the writer of Chronicles wouldn't bring it up. But it is funny that it's not brought up because, I mean, how many problematic characters do we have in the Bible already? (laughs) A ton. So what's one more? We start out with Adam. (laughs) What's one more episode, right? Yeah. Yeah, we start with Adam being problematic and we go right through John writing Revelation. And we have some problems with the person of John. Uh, As much as we appreciate what he did. So yeah, but there's just no way of getting around how, how just troubling and disturbing this passage has been for everyone. Mm -hmm. And it's a problem for us today. It was a problem for the rabbis. And again, you know, like I said, the the writer of Chronicles is still a problem. And so we, 
we get to see that there is this tendency, and it's a human tendency that stretches across all eons. We don't like whenever our our heroes wear gray hats, right? You know, right. we and there's a name for something: heroes in gray hats. But yeah. I mean, that, that's um, no. I get what you're saying. Yeah, it, and we want everything to be simple and systematic, and and being able to have those clear cut boundaries. And God doesn't operate like that. God is, he is very relational. And I think that's one of the things that David, David's story demonstrates for us because God's response to David is based on the relationship. Right. And ultimately, I think that's, does, that is what it comes down to is Saul never had the relationship. And we're going to see how the writer of Samuel just knocks that one right on the head and, and reveals that Saul never had the relationship. Mm. And so, but we'll get there. So verse five, then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So very much, you know, David's offering this wonderful politicized speech. Mm -hmm. It's very correct. He's able to flatter and ask exactly for what he wants for what he wants. Um, we the writer very subtly connects this back to Ruth, and later on the the writer of Esther is going to pick up this whole theme too. If I found favor in your eyes, and mm. the idea of asking for what you want, that when you find favor, you can ask for what you want. And so um, I'm not going to go into it today, but I think we've seen other ish areas where you know Ruth and Esther are very much connected with the Book of Samuel. Uh, you know Ruth was. David's great great grandmother, and there might be another great in there. I don't remember for sure. But then right. Esther is connected because Esther and Mordecai are tribe uh, from the tribe of Benjamin, the same tribe as Saul, mm-hmm. and they face. Um, oh my goodness! Um, who's the bad guy in in uh, Esther? Xerxes. No, that's the king. Um, um, oh, uh, Haman. Haman, the Agite, the Gagite who is supposed to traditionally be the descendant of King Agag. Gotcha. So the, the books are very connected. Uh, and the other connection to Esther is Saul's kingdom is taken away from him and given to a neighbor who is better than he is, just like uh, the queen at the opening of Esther. It's, her crown is taken away from her and given to a neighbor who is better than her. Okay. So some, some real good connections there. So he, he asked, um, well, I also just saw my notes that because it is connected to Esther, it also connects us to the book of Daniel and the book and the end of Genesis where we're talking about Joseph, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. those stories, all three of those are the telling of the same story. Right. So David requests a city from the King of Gath and, you know, he makes it sound so humble, but think about it for just a second. Oh yeah. I mean, it's. <laughs> It's sheer hubris. I mean, <laughs> he totally just asks somebody to give him a city. Some might call it chutzpah, <laughs> right? Which is sovereignty without the crown, which is very <laughs> much where David is operating. Exactly. Yeah, it's <laughs> just insane. Yeah. Yeah. If if it's okay with you, I would like a city. I humbly request. An entire city. What would happen if I just like, you know, wrote to the governor of Oklahoma and said, hey, by the way, could I just have a town? Would you mind giving me one? They might give you one. I don't know. There's, there are plenty that, I mean, they have uh, yeah. nothing going on. This is true. This is true. And, but, and I'm not saying there's a slight to any of the towns. I'm, say, I'm saying there are actually like abandoned towns. Yeah, like, like ghost towns pretty ghost much. Ghost towns in almost. Oklahoma. Yeah, basically. <laughs> but I mean. You know, he did the same thing with Naval, and Naval, who was one of his own tribe, says, I'll kill you first. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to take what belongs to me. And then David winds up with everything. You know, so maybe the king of Gath kind of learned something from that. Uh, I don't think so, honestly, but it is fun to speculate. I mean, it, it may be because <laughs> the Philistines before, I mean, when it came to the Ark mm-hmm. and all that, they're like, well, you know, when God sent a plague, yeah. like, Hey, before we get any more of these like Egypt did, right. let's get rid of this thing. Right. They, they're not stupid. When it comes to their dealings with Israel, I mean, there's, there's a general stupidity because they're taking on God's uh, people. Right. But they can be very smart about it. And I, I'm still, when I 
I think sometimes when we read through this, you know, it's like, oh, okay, David asked for a city. Da, da, da. No, think about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, I mean, really, I kind of wonder if there's anybody in the Bible who takes the words, you have not because you ask not any more seriously than David does. Mm-hmm. I mean, David really seems to believe that he can do that. And, um, you know, the other interesting thing about this, and I, I just, I thought this was very cool. David is asking the enemy to give him what God had already promised him. Because mm-hmm. Ziklag belonged to the territory of Judah. So David is only asking for what is his birthright already. Right. And so it's this idea that the enemy has to return what they have taken. Well, there's there's that. And then, of course, then that also kind of ties us back to... Um the brothers, Jacob and Esau, mm-hmm. those brothers, there were two of them because God already said that this stuff was going to be Jacob's and right. then Jacob goes in and he lies about things in order to get what should already be his. Yeah. And, and so in one sense, it, it, it's saying, hey, I want to, to see the fulfillment of what God's promised. But on another hand, it's like totally audacious. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it kind of uh, makes me wonder, and this is something as I was reading through this, I'm like, We've been taught so often as Christians that the correct thing, the proper thing, is to be so humble that we ask for nothing. Right. And where is that line? I mean, should we be asking for more? And I'm not saying, oh, God, give me a private jet or anything like that. But things that God has promised us, are we, are we still asking to see those things fulfilled? Right. And so... Just something to think about. And, you know, I don't want us to go out and, and think, oh, I'm just going to name it and claim it or blab it and grab it. That Don't do that. I would feel so awkward if I was ever in a, like, a position where I was doing some kind of ministry work that required a private jet for some reason. But I don't know what that would be. Like, I can't even think of what it would be. I have no idea. I, I mean, I could see where it would I mean, be like maybe a private plane to fly people into like remote regions of yeah, of, like a pedal jumper or something. Yeah, yeah. But for flying around the U.S., I mean, I don't think anyone needs a private jet. I, you know, no, a, I would love not, to find a way to justify it. Don't I, get me wrong. Oh, sure. I mean, <laughs> the only the only thing I could think is if maybe I got my pilot's license and decided to start a business to finance other things that I want to do. But, you know, apparently that's pretty expensive to get into. It is. It is. Because I've looked into it because I, yeah, I love to fly. And so I've got a friend who gets to take us up every so often. He actually offered to help me get my pilot's license if I paid for the fuel. And I looked at the cost of fuel alone and went, oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) I can't. (laughs) Yeah. And it killed me because I would love to love to fly. Uh, that's like one of my favorite things ever. And I like to fly in small planes where you feel it. But anyway, enough about me. So, yeah, <laughs> we, should, we should carry on. So, Verse 6. Uh, so that day, Akish gave him Ziklag, and therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. So from this point on, you know, Ziklag pretty much, um, it's going to appear again. It's going to appear 15 more times in the Bible. And, you know, we first encountered it back in Joshua 1531. Like I said, it's one of the cities that's listed in the inheritance of Judah. Uh, in Joshua 19.5, it's among the cities allotted to Simon. But we remember back in Judges 1, and if you've been following us, we talked about this. Simon and Judah kind of just melded together until they became indistinguishable to e- from each other. Sure. And Judah became the identifier for everyone in this area. Now, in 1 Chronicles 4.27 we find that Simon did not multiply like Judah, and that's the reason for that melding. And it, it, seems, to, it seems that during this time, during uh, David's reign, when he gets there, that up to that point, Simon had re- retained enough of a presence within Israel that they had actually maintained some kind of, you know, very small hold on, on the, the city itself. But then by the time David gets there, it's completely turned over to mm-hmm. Judah. Mm-hmm. So um, Nehemiah eleven twenty eight. it's our final mention of the city. It's inhabited by the tribe of Judah after the return from exile. And so um, we really don't know the precise location of Ziklag. I've uh, Becca Lavelle, who is studying archaeology, she gave me some books, and I, I was like looking in them to, in them to see if we can uh, find some kind of information. 
it's just not there. What we do know is that Gath and Ziklag are far enough removed that David can pretty much do as he pleases without the Philistines knowing. So, sure. you know, it's probably more than a day's walk. It's, it's close enough to several enemies of Israel for David to make routine raids on them. Yeah. And I, I also think it's funny that, I mean, real estate laws must have been way different because he <laughs> says that day he gave it to him. And you're like, you know, yep. I had to wait 30 days to buy a house. Right. You know, just, <laughs> oh, yeah. one, just one. Yeah, Not just even one. a city. <laughs> well, and then you got to wonder, what, what was that city comprised of? Did, was it a walled city? Was it, did it have tents? Evidently, it wasn't substantial enough to survive in as far as archaeological terms, at least not well enough to be identified. There's a couple of... Uh, at least not that we found. Right. Well, there's a few places buried. that... <laughs> well, there's some ideas of it might be this pl- place where they're digging or it might be that place, but nobody can say for sure. So there's not enough identifiers within those tells um, right. that, where they're digging that, to let us know. Uh, we also know that it's far enough away from the Philistines and we're going to find this out later on, that the Amalekites felt secure enough to raid Ziklag. Mm-hmm. So that, that tells you something about how far away it was. It kind of reminds us back uh, when uh, the tribe of Dan picked up and moved uh, in the last book of Ju- in the last part of Judges. Mm. So I uh, might go back and review that episode. But um, the idea that a city can belong to a part of a nation, but be- still be far enough away that the nation can't protect it was very common. And uh, it's also, the, the reason why all this is important, I, I'm not just going off on a random, here's a list of facts about Ziklag, <laughs> but it's a clue as to the dating, because notice what the author says about it. He says it belongs to the kings of Judah to this day. So we know that it was least edited mm-hmm. after the division of, the, of Israel from, to the northern and southern kingdoms. Sure. So it's a, it belongs to the kings of Judah. But it's before the exile, because the earliest possible date, uh, so this makes the earliest possible date the, the reign of Rehoboam, which is um, the son of Solomon. So it kind of gives us some idea. It had to be written somewhere between Rehoboam and, um, and going into his exile. So verse 7, the number of days, oh, and by the way, I, I say all that because a lot of people go, well, how can we possibly know when this was written? This is just one of these clues mm-hmm. that, yeah. that you can find if you're reading closely. So verse 7, the number of days David lived in the country of Philistines was a year and four months. And so David's not going to return to Israel until he becomes king. He's going to stay with the Philistines. And that's pretty much what all that verse has to tell us. Verse 8, now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. So, um, you know, David's not sitting idle. Uh, he might not be able to claim the throne yet, but he's already doing the work of a king. These are all people groups that the mm-hmm. king was supposed to take care of. Uh, he's doing what Israel had failed to do in the conquest. Mm-hmm. Because if you go back to, again, go back to Judges, go back to the book of Joshua, they were only partially successful with those raids and with um, taking over the land. And he is proving, and this is the other big point, he is proving that the complete conquest of Canaan was possible. Yep. Because he's doing it with 600 men. Joshua commanded 30,000 men. Uh-huh. And so that was uh, from the number in um, Joshua 8.3 where they attacked Ai. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually those 30,000 men were selected from among the army. That's not even the totality of Joshua's army. So here's David with 600 men versus what Joshua had. There was no excuse for, um, for the fact that Canaan was not properly conquered and subdued at that point in time. The other thing David's proving is God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Yes, hundreds of years have passed since God made this promise. Back to Joshua at the beginning of the book of Judges, but David is only just now realizing the totality of what God had promised them. And even if you want to go back further, you know, this is what God promised Abraham. Mm-hmm. So even if it seems to take forever, you know, like when I let God dry my dishes, uh, when it seems to take forever, God's still going to accomplish all that he promises. Right. So I also want to take a moment to look at the people groups named. The Geshurites, the, you know, the first mention we have of them is in Deuteronomy 3.14. 
it, they're mentioned in connection with uh, the defeat of King Og. Mm-hmm. And now, if you remember, King Og was the giant king. Uh, he was a remnant of the Rephaim. His iron bed measured 13 feet by 6 feet. So yeah, that's a pretty good size bed, even by today's yeah. standards. Um, this is the same size bed that we find in ziggurats, where the fertility rituals were conducted, the mm-hmm. idea that the god would come down and he would uh, have ceremonial sex with uh, the, the women who were there, and this was going to ensure the, the fertility of the world, both in crops and in livestock and all of that stuff. The, the Gerashites lived at the border of Bashan, and the tribe of Manasseh's borders extended to the land of the Gerashites. So um, this Bashan, if you've done any study, do you followed uh, Dr. Heiser at all, you're going to know that that is really, really linked with the Rephaim. Mm-hmm. It's uh, linked with the, the giants, uh, evil demonic forces. So um, it, we find in Joshua 13, 2, that God tells Joshua specifically, you need to take them out. And in Joshua 13, 13, um, it said, um, it says specifically they were not taken out and they lived among the people to the day that the book of Joshua was written. Mm-hmm. So they were, they were there. Uh, this is, this is the next and last time we hear of them. So we hear of them in Joshua and then we hear of them here again. This is it. This is the only time they're, they're mentioned in the Bible. And so, um, you know, David does what Joshua was supposed to do. The Gerasites, um, we have no idea who these people were. This is the only place in the Bible that they're mentioned. Hmm. The, the Septuagint completely just says, we, we don't know who they are, just, just leave them out. It's not a really? big deal. Really? That's funny. Yeah, we, we don't have to include them. Um, some have claimed that's a misspelling of another name, but in the Hebrew, we find two forms of names, and the first form is actually bracketed. Okay. So we know that it's very intentional that... It's kept in there. Uh, you wouldn't misspell, you wouldn't correct a misspelling of the word with another misspelling. Right. So whoever corrected the first spelling uh, felt like they, had, they knew how to spell it correctly. They knew what they were talking about. Okay. Um, what we do know from, about them from this context alone is that they live, lived between Shur and Egypt, and they were inhabitants of the land old. And so this sort of thing kind of bothers critics of the Bible because they see it as an addition of a new name to, you know, kind of, who are these people? We're going to mention them now because it's convenient. And so it's kind of a, must be a mistake or a contradiction, but it, it's not. Uh, most of these time, kinds of things have really a lot of uh, possible um, solutions that are really simple. This isn't just a writer introducing a new name because they want to make it sound like David's doing more than he was or, you know, you know, inflate the story. Mm-hmm. But names change over time. I mean, that, that's just a fact. Uh, the little town we grew up in was, uh, had, I don't know how many names. I had Three Rivers was one name of it. It's okay now, okay, A-Y. Uh, I forget what other names it had, but it had several different names before. Why it, would you go from Three Rivers to okay? Did people get tired of writing <laughs> two whole words for a... I have no idea. I mean, but, I mean, that, that's the kind Save of... Save on ink. You're right. I don't know. Uh, sounded a lot more like Oklahoma, uh, led to a lot of confusion. But, but yeah. I, I don't but, know. That's, that's weird. I'm yeah. sorry. I guess, but we're not the Oklahoma <laughs> History Podcast. Let's, uh, sorry. Right. No. But, yeah. I mean, the thing is, names do change. Um, New York, you know, was New Amsterdam. I only know that because the song uh, Istanbul was once Constantinople. Uh, you know, names change over time. And a, a large amount of time has changed, it has passed since Deuteronomy to Joshua, and even more from Joshua to Samuel. Mm-hmm. And so there's a good chance that what the writer is here is using the name most familiar with his audience. He, he's not using an older name because his audience wouldn't know who that was. Right. So, um, the other possible thing is, is that tribes became known by their most prominent clan. And so the most prominent clan was known by the name of their most prom- prominent member. Mm-hmm. So if you had an ancestor who you know, was a fierce warrior or did something amazing or great, their name might displace the name of you know, somebody who gotten, has gotten forgotten in yeah. you know, the sands of history. Makes sense. Yeah. Well... I- 
And this is the thing. When you really stop and think about it, most of these things have simple solutions. Uh, And not to mention, again, people groups were often known by different names depending on who was talking about them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was a road, uh, you know, not to make this all about our history, but I think people kind of get this. There was a road that ran between two towns, one okay and porter Mm -hmm. if you lived on the okay side of it it was porter road because it Mm -hmm. took you to porter yeah but if you lived in porter it was the okay road right right so you know depending on what perspective you have really depends on what um what you might call something and it could be a particular subset within the garishites so you have the garizites the gershirites sorry the names are so close you see how close they are like i'm confused well, and they're not really easy names to say anyway. Yeah, so. our, our, our Western mouths don't really like to wrap around them very well. Um, but, you know, this is, again, not an issue or a reason to distrust the Bible. Uh, the other people group mentioned the Amalekites. Uh, the first time we encountered the Amalekites, we need to remember that's back in Genesis 14, 7. Mm-hmm. And that was the battle of the four kings in which Lot was taken captive and right. Abraham rescued him. Uh, in Je- Exodus 17, 8 through 16, the Amalekites attacked Israel on the, during the Exodus. Uh, they are the ones that when Moses had to have his arms held up by Aaron and her, mm-hmm. this is who they were fighting. Now, a quick question. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, Mo- when Moses, not Moses, the other one, Abraham, when he went into battle, he had 300 men. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So is there anything to David having 600, like double the number of... Of what Abraham has? It did not occur to me. Um, knowing the way Bi- the Bible uses numbers, I would not be survi- surprised. Okay. Um, but I-, I didn't study that, but it would make sense to me. Um, you know, three is the number of accomplishment. You add 100 to that, then it- it's full, complete, total mm-hmm. accomplishment. Um, 600 actually is the, six is the number, number of man. man. Yeah, yeah, because we're created on the sixth day, so this could be, you know, the, the humanity side of things coming through. I don't know because, like, again, uh, now you got my brain whirling around. Well, because I mean, because you know, you have Abraham; he was able to be successful with with three hundred men. And you mm-hmm. have David with double that number, so he's you know could be even more successful. I don't know if that's well, but at the same time, what's really weird is it, it what where I'm heading, and again, this is us just you know throwing things out there uh, and recording it, which is probably dangerous. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> you know, David, during this time, he's not talking to God. There's been no appeal to God. I mean, we, we assume because it's David, there has to be some conversation, but not enough for the writer of Samuel. So in the fact that this is six and the number of man is just talking about things that David's doing simply as a man. Uh, he's outside of God's territory. He's not you know, he's been compelled to worship other gods at this point in his life. I don't know. Uh, I, it's, it, I, the, no, but these are the, these are the questions that you and well, I have and always I, and, asked. Well, I know, but I, 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 I wonder if about the, if he, I mean, he may not be compelled to worship other gods I necessarily, right. but. Well, it's the, David. It's the probably hyperbole. Uh, well, yeah, no, what he was saying that other people are telling him to go worship other mm-hmm. gods. But based on, you know, what he's written in the Psalms, I don't think he's really necessarily... He's not making sacrifices at the local temple. That, that's my, my assumption. Yeah. But, he, yeah. I, I think he was really making a, a nod towards the custom of the day. When you changed addresses, you changed kings. And when you changed kings, you changed gods. Mm-hmm. Because the kings were the representative of the gods. So even paying taxes, and when you remember, this is a debate going on in Jesus' day. It, it is paying taxes worshiping Caesar. Right. Right. And I mean, and the other thing, I mean, if you, it could possibly be even uh, when he goes in and asks for a whole city, it could be as far as that's concerned, like, hey, let's, I need this to be a, 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 an Israel address mm-hmm. <laughs> so and that we can worship God. Yeah. Um, so that we're not having to live in the Philistines land. Yeah. And, and so you, you, we've got all of these things at, at play. So it's not just a simple story of, you know, David went and camped someplace else until he could come back home. You know, he's not spending the night with a friend until mom and dad cool off. Right. You know, he, he's, he is trying to work out his destiny and his identity within this larger framework where his whole society has a, a cosmological view that 
encompasses the spiritual realm and the spiritual ramifications of each and every daily event. Mm -hmm. And the idea of the spiritual realm and the physical realm being separate was something that they had no idea about. Right. It, it never even occurred to him. So the idea that he could go in and say, hey, I need you, the Philistine king, our sworn enemy, to give us a city where we can live. He could very well see that as a kind of symbolic conquest of the Philistines and a bloodless one at that. Right. Which, I mean, how like God. I mean, so many of the battles that, that Israel had to face when they appealed to God God opened the doors and supernaturally uh, created a way for them to win without ever drawing a sword. Right. So, right. and we're going to get into some more of those uh, as we get into the book of Kings. Those are fun. But I mean, violence isn't always the best way to do what God wants you to do. Despite what some people are trying to tell us online, you are 100% correct. Sometimes, you know, that be still and know that I am God uh, really means be still, mm -hmm. uh, you know? <laughs> and now, uh, prayerfully and wisely discerning when those moments are uh that's that's on us right so um but uh, back to the the amalekites uh the amalekites uh, like i said we saw them in, in exodus where they were attacking israel they they specifically were told that they attacked the the ones behind and when you're traveling in a big group like the they were in the exodus that's going to be your children mm -hmm. that's going to be your elderly that's yeah. going to be the sick the people who can't keep up Yes, this is not the warriors who can defend themselves. And so this was seen as a very cowardly act. And in Numbers 24:20, Balaam, when he prophesies, he talks about Amalek and he says they're first among nation, but it and um it's going to be utterly destroyed. They're facing utter destruction. And in Deuteronomy uh 25:17, God commands that once settled in the land of Israel, Israel should go back and, and take vengeance on Amalek for what they have done to Israel. Because right. remember, here's what I love, and most people don't realize this. In the Bible, throughout the Bible, this is not something that originated with Jesus. You don't hurt the defenseless. Right. right. God is always about protecting the defenseless. So if you hurt the defenseless, you're his. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, he does not take it lightly when we hurt the innocent. And uh, he, he tells Israel, when you get there, when you've get a, gotten established and you've got you know, cities built for your, your elderly and children and disabled to stay in, mm -hmm. then I want you to go out and blot out the memory of Amalek from the earth. Right. And when Saul did not do that, when Saul failed to do that, that is when God said, nah, -uh. You did not protect the innocent. You did not avenge the innocent. You aren't fit to beat my king. And so then we encounter them several times in Judges, but they're ne they never attack on their own. They're always paired up with somebody in Judges mm -hmm. because they're not a brave nation. And so um, we're connected right back to that story of um, in chapter 15 where God tells, tells Saul, hey, you need to do something about this. And so there's very, very little direct information in the Bible. In many ways, their memory was uh, blotted out. All we have is this title and a couple of stories. And um, there is a suggestion out there that possibly they're the, the descendants of Esau because he did have a, a grandson whose name was Amalek. Mm. But it's kind of hard for Abraham to fight King Amalek whenever that's his grandson right. who hadn't been born yet. So, uh, and plus we're told directly that they are among the first nations predating any nation that descended from Esau. Mm. So, um, and maybe it just kind of goes to show you how entrenched Esau was with the culture that he's naming his kid after them. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, because when you start having those crossover names, now we're saying, Hey, we're identifying with this particular people group that we yeah. may not have originated from. And so you know, we're given the setup specifically to help us remember what was supposed to have been accomplished whenever they entered Canaan, but we're also being given the setup so that we can contrast David with Saul. Mm -hmm. David is not going to shy away from the biggest enemies that Israel has. David's going to go after them, and he's going to go after them hard. So, um, verse 9, And David would strike the land and leave neither man nor woman alive, and he would take away the sheep, the ox, and the donkeys, the camels, the garments, back to Akish. Um, 
this is a hard verse. I, I there's mm-hmm. like you said, we we've got all of those questions about was David why is David exempt uh, from what Saul was commanded to do? You know, one of the things that I think might be going on here is David's a fugitive on the run. Mm-hmm. David is not in the same situation with Saul, who has a palace, who has a standing army, who has fields and crops that he can uh, harvest or, or cattle that, that he can slaughter for food. David is hanging on by the skin of his teeth. Right. One wrong move and he's dead. And not only is he dead, the 600 people, the marginalized, the misfits, the, the, in many ways, according to societal standards, they're the ones behind who sure. are with, with David, just like the people that Amalek took out. Um, but there, there's this idea that has been proposed that this is a, a form of harem, that devotion that, to God. Right. But the fact that David is keeping the animals alive tells you that's probably not. And it's even more problematic to read it as the harem whenever you've got um, him taking them to Akish, right. which is basically a sacrifice, mm-hmm. an offering to this king and this king who, who represents another god. And that, that becomes the basis of these questions yeah, that we, we have. have. A lot of questions. Uh, and Yeah, well, and this is why uh, one of the, the principles that the, the rabbis drew out of this is that when you're in your land and you're protected and someone asks you to honor a foreign king or, or a foreign god, you shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. But if it is a matter of life and death, you're allowed. They drew it out of this this story here because David is using it to stay alive. Fair enough, yeah. And, you know, and of course, all rules of the Torah pretty much can be suspended for the preservation of life. Right. And this is... Um, the other reason this is so problematic is the author gives us nothing. Mm-hmm. He doesn't give away one single thing. He doesn't approve of it. He doesn't disprove of it. And, you know, what David is doing in relation to the Torah is never clarified. And the thing is, when I read through commentaries, and I read through so many of them mm-hmm. in different articles, nobody offered a solution that did not still have significant problems. Hmm. So I'm not even going to begin to pretend that I'm going to say, oh, God was okay with it because uh, the most popular solution was God was okay with it because David had to do it to stay alive. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, I, I guess that, that would make sense. I mean, given, given what we know about suspending the Torah for, sa- for saving life. So yeah. that's, yeah, that's the only thing I, I can come up with, but that's, um, and I think that's about the only thing anybody else has come up with. And I would hate to, to think that, um, I thought I was smarter than anyone else. Well, it, I mean, I guess that go. I mean, if, if that is the case, then that goes to the whole idea that God is contextual, um, that he, looks at situations and he looks at the heart versus the mode the versus the action because you know Saul was doing it to self-aggrandize and David mm-hmm. might be doing it to you know to to save his people uh could be to pay rent um yeah. it you know something of that nature or to that you know we don't have anything about the agreement of you know cuz he gave him the the town but did he give it, give it, or was it, you know, on credit? Oh, right, right. And, you know, I, I, for me, one of the things I, I see in this is this is just a place of turmoil in David's life. Because when you think about it, he has, you know, he's been anointed king. He's killed the giant. He's been a general in the king's army. He's led mm-hmm. all of these mm-hmm. successful campaigns. He married the king's daughter. And, you know... He's the rightful heir to the throne, and even Saul at this point has acknowledged that David is God's chosen, but everything's fallen apart. And I mean, how does David even recognize his, his reality at this point in, in time as God's provision? Right. I, I, I would think that, well, I know if it was me, I can, I can say this confidently, if it was me, I would be doubting everything at this point in time. And what I love about David is, despite that this is a, um, 
a time of doubt for him, he can't resist who he is. He is still the warrior king and he's still fighting God's enemies because this is what he's been called to do. And this is what he's been made to do. And there's this, mm-hmm. this, this drive within him. You don't take this kind of insult to God, that your family, your, your history, without you know, making some kind of, of uh, attempt to, to write that. And so for me, I, I think that shows that despite the fact there's confusion, he still has enough faith to act. Right. And he, he may not be acting completely in a correct way, but he is not just saying around, woe is me. He really is attempting to do the right thing. And uh, so I, I do, I do like that with him because I think so often when, when our paths aren't clear, we have this, this tendency to just give up right. and say, well, I just won't do anything. And David, I never see him doing that. He, he's always moving forward. Even if he's making the wrong decision, he's, he's making a decision. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I think that's probably a good place for us to wrap up and we'll come back and we'll talk about what Akish's um, response is to all of this and why that's important. And yeah. And then we get into the Witch of Endor. Yeah. Yeah. That only took yeah. a few weeks to write those notes up. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, I, I'm excited. I, I know you, yeah, get a lot of research in on that, and it, so it's it's going to be real interesting because again, it's kind of a problematic passage. So. Yeah, it's the book of Samuel. Everything's problematic. Yeah. Well, let's <laughs> uh, we'll dig into that uh, probably for us in a few minutes for you guys next week. Um, thanks for being here. If you enjoyed it, come be part of the conversation. RavenCreeksc.com, RavenCreeksc on all the social media. Um, we're looking forward to hearing from you. And uh, thanks again, and we'll be back next time. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.